Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Fred Cohen, MD, who is a head specialist at Mount Sinai Medical System in New York City. We will discuss sleep and migraines. Fred, assistant professor of medicine and neurology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, is trained in internal medicine and headache medicine. A lifelong headache sufferer, his research interests include treatments for chronic migraine and evaluating epimediology. Burden and Impact of Migraine. He is assistant editor of Headache, the Journal of Head and Face Pain and Current Pain, and Headache's, Headache Reports. Fred, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me back. Let's start with a conflict of interest statement. Are there any conflict of interest issues that we should be aware of? Uh, sure. Um, only that I do receive a small amount of honoraria for serving as an uh, section editor for current pain and headache reports. What is sleep? We all sort of know there's a time of day when you just can't help it and you go lie down and you sleep. But what is it in terms of our bodies? What function does sleep play? So sleep, you know, has perplexed doctors, scientists, humans since, you know, sort of dawn time. Because what is happening in sleep? Like, for instance, when we sleep, our hearts beat slower. You know, our, you know, digestive tract goes slower. And, but when we sleep, you know, we dream and our brain, we, you know, like our, we have like rapid eye movement, things like that. So the brain's not, it's not slowing down at all. So what does sleep do? And it was more recently that it was more the function of sleep is actually one where the brain is sort of cleaning itself, where throughout the day, you know, thinking, feeling, motions, all that stuff, pain, sensation, the body uses neuropeptides, neurotransmitters, et cetera. Well, those functions have waste, you know, this byproducts and they, and they accumulate throughout the day, you know, and they could be pro-inflammatory, the sort of toxins, if you will. And they can have a lot of effects on our cognitive abilities, behavior, judgment, and of course, pain. And we have a system in our brain, it's called the glymphatic system. If you could think, you know, if you ever heard of the lymphatic system, the lymph nodes in our body, they deal with, you know, our white blood cells and cleaning out infections. Well, the glymphatic system is sort of similar in our brain. It's the waste clearance pathway. And it sort of acts to clear out the cobwebs of the brain, so to say. And that's sort of the function of sleep. It's like a garbage disposal for the brain. Your brain is actually hard at work, is what I'm hearing you say. When you're asleep at night that you think it's just rest, it's not. There's a lot going on. The brain's always working. But yeah, sleep is sort of, think of that as a recharging. Think of that way as like, you know, if throughout the day you're filling a trash bag, right? Well, the trash bag's going to overflow and cause a mess. Well, sleep is taking out the trash. So that when you wake up, the trash bag is empty. Is that why you feel so tired and it's challenging to function the way you normally would if you don't get proper sleep for whatever reason, maybe time, show, time zone changes or something in your lifestyle interrupts your sleep and you're not getting the full night's rest that you usually get? Is that why this, this cleaning doesn't take place and that makes you tired? You know, it's tired is sort of, you can think of the body's way of telling you to sleep, but all those other negative symptoms that come with being sleep deprived, such as, you know, the 
difficulty concentrating, if you're having a headache, pain, stuff like that, you know, is thought to be associated with that. Yeah. And eventually, if you don't sleep, you die, right? With, with not enough sleep, you know, that is a thing where if you, you know, stay up for a while, then yes, the brain starts functioning abnormally. Tell us about the different types of sleep, because it's not just one kind of sleep. You, you go to bed and you have just one sleep. There's a series of brain patterns, brain waves that tell us that different things are occurring in the brain, right? Right. So you can think of a sleep cycle as generally about 90 minutes, and there's about four stages of it. So stage one, which is, so I'll call you yeah, stage one, two, three, and four is what I'll call them. Um, some you know studies have different names to it. In stage one, think of it the transition from being awake to sleep, uh, commonly known as light sleep. Meaning this is when you know you can think of it. You're falling asleep. You can be easily awakened. You know, and the way we actually define this, like on an actual like objective level, is you you have different sort of brainwave frequencies. So like we actually can objectively, if you're monitoring your sleep, you can see. And this is when you know. Uh, that uh, if you ever noticed when you're sleeping, sometimes you might have like a certain jerk. Um, like I sort of noticed that maybe once every few nights when you're falling asleep, all of a sudden you're like, you know, all of a sudden like jerk upwards or your arm might move. Those are called hypnic jerks. That happens in that stage. And again, this lasts only a few minutes. Then we get to stage two. And this is sort of now going from light sleep to a, bit deep, uh, to a bit deeper sleep. And now this is where you sort of lose awareness of surroundings. And this is when the body starts changing, meaning your temperature goes down a bit. Your heart rate is starting to slow down. And this can last anywhere from 10 to 25 minutes. Then we enter stage three. And stage three is sort of known as the deep sleep. And that's categorized by you have slow brain waves. And this is where it's harder now to wake someone up. This is where, you know, if you, get, if you ever get woken up by someone and you feel really groggy, you are likely in stage three sleep. And again, this is where your muscle activity, your heart rate, your respiration, all this is going down and down and down. And then finally, stage four, REM. Now, this is one people probably have heard of before, rapid eye movement. This is uh, known for when people have vivid dreams. And this is where we think a lot of the essential brain function comes in that I was talking about. When you, you might have heard before, I remember learning before even med school in like my high school psychology class where, oh, you need to sleep to get proper memory processing and learning and whatnot. It's thought to happen in REM, rapid eye movement. It only lasts about 10 minutes It's uh, at first. It's, it's generally uh, short. And then actually as the night goes on, its length increases. It could be up to an hour in the later part of the night. And it's characterized, you know, by rapid eye movements. That's exactly what's happening, you know. And this is where we actually have an increase in sort of activity and whatnot. Um, and again, sort of, Similar to stage three, woken up during, you know, rapid eye movement during stage four, you you feel more groggy. You know, typically when you wake up, uh, you know, on your own, you're coming out of stage one. And that's why you won't really like, you know, you can easily wake up versus being woken up in stage three or stage four. And again, that's that's um, and it's not actually going through stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. It's actually you typically go through stage one, stage two, stage three. So you're going back and forth between stage two and stage three with REM going, you know, in between sometimes. Um, and that's, you know, so it's not that you go from stage one into REM the whole night. You're actually going through all of these. And um, that this is the typical sleep pattern. Um, and again, the last thing, you know, it's people say how much sleep should you get? A lot of reports report different things as low as seven, 
people hear eight, seven to eight is the most common one. Some reports it's a nine, but I always advocate for my patients to get seven to eight hours of sleep. And of course, good quality sleep, uninterrupted sleep, you know, because again, you want to, in order to have good quality sleep, you need to be achieving stage three of REM. If you're, you know, waking up a lot and you're only getting in stage one and stage two, you're not having high quality sleep. What is high quality sleep? That high quality sleep or good quality, you know, you're effectively getting through the cycle. You know, for instance, let's just say, I'm going to make an example. You have um, a spouse, a child, a cat, something going on that's waking you up a lot, right? Well, if you're being woken up every hour and a half, so let's say you say you sleep eight hours at night, right? But you live in a noisy place or something's going on that every two hours you're waking up. Well, your cycle's being interrupted. You're not a, you're not getting into stage three and stage four a lot. You're not completing full cycles. Like a full cycle typically takes ninety minutes. So therefore, uh, you need to you know uh, be able to get the stage three in, in in REM sleep to have a good quality of sleep. But if you're getting frequently woken up or something you know something's externally going on, you're not achieving these full cycles. And then for your bot, like you know your your the each cycle has a function like you know like i said stage three and rem sleep this is where those brain functions come in to sort of repair things if you're not getting to those then you're you know you're not getting the what what the body needs sleep to do you know for itself so you need several of these 90 minute cycles in which you go through the different stages well i'm hearing you correctly mainly two three and four where these functions in your brain these cleaning functions take place so you need several of these cycles in order to get all of the work correct and that's what happens when you sleep that you know it's not you know your body is going through these you know uh, but like i said it takes time to go through them. And if you're being woken up constantly, you're not fully going through these cycles. What is the rapid eye movement exactly? Is it what's going on when you're dreaming? It's, you know, the, the, what's physiologically happening is your, 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 your brain waves are actually fast, similar to actually what's like when you're awake, meaning that if you were to look at the brain waves of someone who was awake and in stage four REM sleep, it's not that much different. So it's thought to be like, again, related to dreaming that you, that um, physiologic, because your heart rate actually increases um, and your uh, blood pressure actually, you know, goes back to normal during REMs, during rapid eye movement sleep. Again, it's not that long compared to the other cycles. And then as we go through the different stages in our lives, from newborn to older adult, the different growing stages of our lives, the sleep that we get is different and the periods in which we sleep are different. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, um, for, you know, we generally more sleep as we're growing. Typically kids get around 10 hours. Um, I'm not a pediatrician, so I can't talk fully. I don't, you know, I never put my foot in my mouth. I'll never comment on something. I don't hundred percent know something. Uh, but yes, generally when kids are growing, they need nine, 10 hours of sleep. We need more. Um, and as, you know, as we get older, you know, entering post 18 years old, you know, adulthood, um, we should still get seven, eight hours. Uh, a lot of working people, unfortunately don't. It's a common thing I talk about with, um, uh, 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 with my patients. Sleep disorders become more prominent, you know, as we become adults. And that's more, you know, we live in a very busy working world. And generally, as we hit our older ages, elderly, post 65 years old, 
it sort of is that we not that we need more sleep, but we typically we just end up sleeping uh, some. It's not that we sleep more, but most actual people developed uh, what I call what I would say is described as earlier circadian rhythm. So circadian rhythm is just our body sleep habits like, oh, I feel tired at 11 p.m. I go to bed. That's your circadian rhythm. It's when your body's clock and knows to go to bed. And generally, as we get older and older, that sort of gets earlier. You know, that uh, like, for instance, right now in my 30s, I go to bed around midnight, whereas my, you know, people uh, in their 60s and their 70s, like my parents will go to bed around nine. It's like, oh, yeah, no, old people go to bed early. Like is it, there is a bit of a, a physiological change in that as that your circadian rhythm just becomes earlier. It's a bit confusing, though, because I understand that a lot of older adults, as you were saying, over a certain age, have trouble sleeping. So even though we think that they sleep more hours, sort of like in infancy, that they actually are struggling to sleep through a whole night, never mind seven hours. What can you yes, tell us about that? Yes, and that's a bit of just a bigger issue. And it's not that per se, when you're older, you have more troubles going to sleep. It's that when we get older, we just start developing other medical problems. You know, there's a lot of you know, sleep issues out there. And it's not that, you know, I'm not going to make the statement when we're older, we have a harder time falling asleep. But you know, we develop other medical conditions as we get older. And those correlate with other sleep conditions and whatnot. And this is a very, very common thing I address in my headache clinic, because, you know, headaches and sleep go hand in hand. I tell my patients, in order to get good headache health, you need to have good sleep health. What can these patients who are struggling to sleep, either the ones who don't have enough time because they've packed too many things into their day, or the ones who get to bed early, as you were describing earlier, but then they can't sleep or they get to sleep, but then they wake up? How can they deal with this? Well, the first and foremost is addressing what the online problem is. And one is a sleep diary, you know, um, that that tracks when you go to bed, when you wake up, how many times you woke up, how do you feel in the morning, you know, uh, to track actually how much sleep you're getting. Um, and that can be done with writing, like having a little book at your night table, keeping track on your phone. There are apps for this. And because that's that would be the first bit of information we need to sort of identify what's going on. And then from there, you know, this is also a discussion over your primary care doctor because the first step is, you know, seeing is this sleep hygiene, which I'll add more in a bit, or is there a medical problem at hand? For instance, if someone comes to me and they tell me that, um, oh, yeah, I'm getting only, um, let's say I'm getting eight hours of sleep, but I feel very, very tired. And when they do their sleep diary that it shows eight hours, but then they tell me they're waking up throughout the night. You know, and then I'll ask questions like, do you snore? Then, and they say, yes, I'm worried about sleep apnea. But if someone tells me like, yeah, I go to bed, but it takes me two and a half hours to fall asleep, you know, is there a sleep hygiene issue or, or is there insomnia? Like all these, you know, it's not a, it's not a, to ask oneself, uh, oh, what, why is my having poor quality of sleep? It's not something we can answer immediately. We need details because of course we want to come to the right diagnosis. And also some of these sleep issues, you know, or medical problems, that need to be, you know, it's not as simple as going to bed earlier. And they also could have implications of other conditions. Like, for instance, I'll talk about sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea. Think of that as 
when you're falling, when you're when you're asleep, there's an obstruction in your airway, you know, typically in the in the upper airway. And a lot of people associate this with people who are larger, have a higher BMI, but you don't need to be a large person to get sleep apnea. I know tons of skinny people that have sleep apnea because, again, it's not just having a lot of body weight. It's just defined as there's an obstruction and it has nothing to do with sleep hygiene. There is a physiological issue. And the way that it typically gets treated is actually there are sleep machines that are called continuous continuous pressure, continuous positive airway pressure machines. It's a little mask you wear and it helps keep it open. And again, this is why the, one of the first tasks, if you suffer from sleep issues, talk to your primary care doctor, because for all, you know, for all we know that's going on, it's not a, uh, a lifestyle issue per se. It could be an actual medical condition. And people who, who are not treated with things like sleep apnea, they have a high risk of other medical conditions like heart attack and stroke and all these other things. So that's why it's really important to discuss with your doctor if you're having an issue with sleep, you know, and let's assume then that in a case we have an individual who they, you know, clean bill of health, you know, they don't, I'm not worried about sleep apnea, everything else is going well. Then typically the, you know, the first step will be to addressing sleep hygiene. What is sleep hygiene? You know, just like you need good body hygiene, we have to have good habits with sleep. And that's a very, very common place that a lot of my patients have uh, uh, an issue with. Uh, and a lot of this deals with just the lifestyle in the year of 2023 that um, the most, you know, the most common thing of addressing is the bedroom where we sleep. We need to associate specifically with sleep, meaning, you know, most people have in their in, in, uh, in their bedroom TV, you know, they have their computer, um, they're on their phone at night. You know, and a lot of these are, you know, very easy for me to say. And I am, listen, we're human in the year 2023. I, you know, I use my phone in my in bed as well. But a lot, we need to train our brain to associate the bedroom with just sleep. And that's essentially it. To not be watching TV in bed. To not be using our phone for an hour before we go to bed. That when we go to bed, it's when going to bed, you know. And then also other handy things like such as, not drinking, you know, coffee, after, you know, in the afternoon, not consuming a meal two hours before going to bed, like, oh, I'm going to have my late night snack and go to sleep. Like, no, that's not good. Do not clock watch. That's when, you know, you're trying to fall asleep and you keep looking at the clock. Oh, it's already midnight. Oh, it's already one. Don't do that. And then lastly, what do you do if you can't fall asleep? This is a major thing people, that, that people do that can mess up their sleep hygiene. And, you know, a lot of people, they hear, oh, let me get out of bed. And then go back. But what a lot of people are doing is they end up doing something. When people say to me, what do I do when I can't fall asleep? I say, get up, leave the bedroom, go to another room, but just sit. Don't do anything for a few minutes and then go back. A lot of people end up like cleaning or doing something. When you do that, that's stimulating. No, that's going to do the opposite effect. So if you just go to your kitchen, go to your living room, just sit down for a few minutes and then go back. It's like, it's, it's like you know, resetting. You know? And that's the basis of sleep hygiene. Does everybody snore? No, I wouldn't say that. You know, I actually don't know the statistics of snoring. You know, so snoring, if someone snores, it doesn't mean that they have obstructive sleep apnea or something's wrong. But there's the, the general things that make me suspicious for someone suffering from sleep apnea is snoring is on that list. Males commonly suffer more than uh, than females, but not always. Um, they have a large neck, specifically a circumference greater than 35 centimeters, being overweight, having high blood pressure. But one of the most specific things is waking up throughout the night or if they have a spouse, a partner, 
I ask, what's the pattern of snoring? Meaning if they're always having the same rhythm of snoring, that's, you know, not as troublesome. But if you hear that the snoring, you know, it builds up, it stops for 10 seconds, those alterations are suggestive of sleep apnea. And again, the way you know if you have sleep apnea is actually doing what's called a sleep study, which back in the day you had to go to the hospital, go to a lab and sleep in the lab. Very troublesome. Nowadays, you have this iPad-looking device that just sits next to you when you sleep. So it's very easy to get sleep study nowadays. What about people who are suffering from a medical condition, as you were saying? How often would you say that is the underlying cause outside of sleep apnea, which you've, you've already told us, if I understood correctly, that yeah. is a category on its own? How often would you say that people who are having trouble sleeping, the reason is a medical condition? So I'll for that question like this, that I would say the most common, you know, cause of people with issues sleeping is sleep hygiene itself, then ruling out stuff like sleep apnea. And, you know, again, I can't give a number as, you know, my clinic is not just sleep stuff, uh, but that there are, you know, it's it's something that always needs to be checked. And this is why if you suffer from sleep, you know, sleep issues, sleep, you know, having trouble falling asleep, staying through any of that, to to at least meet with your primary care doctor once because, you know, there are conditions that can affect it. For instance, hormonal issues, issues with your thyroid, issues with, um, you know, uh, 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 electrolyte imbalances, you know, any condition. Sleep is what I call, poor sleep is what I call a B symptom. B symptom is a term that, is using medicine all the time um, and is just vague, you know, just like I deal with headaches. When I meet a pa- you know, I'm a headache specialist. When I meet a patient for the first time, my initial visit, there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of questions I ask because a headache, a lot of things could cause a headache. And my job is to make sure that are we dealing with like migraine, a primary cause of headache, or is there something else in the background going on? Because of course you never want to miss that. And issues with sleep would be the same thing. There are a lot of conditions you know, I, on any any really um, organ system, when the conditions are severe, can affect your sleep. And that's why it's important to not miss something like that, because, of course, the first rule of medicine is do no harm. I can't give you a number statistic of how much, but that's why, you know, when someone brings up sleep me, I always, you know, if they're not a patient of mine, I'm like, hey, you know, these are things you could try. But talk to your primary care doctor first, because, again, you don't want to be not addressing an underlying issue if it's present. So how do we get to migraines from sleep? Why, what is the link between sleep or lack of sleep or low quality sleep and migraines? Sure. So there's two answers to that. The first goes back to what I was bringing up before that sleep is a way to clean out all the toxins that build up. Because what is a headache? What is migraine? Migraine is a state of neuroinflammation. So if you have poor sleep, your body isn't getting rid of all those inflammatory, those, 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 the waste, the trash that is pro-inflammatory. So that is one where we thought where if some people have poor sleep, why it could lead to um, migraine attacks and worsening headache attacks. The other end of that uh, sort of spectrum is the role of melatonin. So, you know, we all hear about melatonin, its role in sleep. Melatonin has a lot of roles, a lot of functions. Not just with sleep, it acts on a lot of different areas. And one of those areas that actually regulates other neuropeptides. We do know that melatonin acts on uh, neuropeptides such as calcitonin gene-related peptide, long word, CGRP, 
And we know that CGRP deals with migraine. So therefore, when we're having poor sleep and messing with a melatonin, we're messing with the other neuropeptides that deal with migraine. This is why actually there are sometimes I will recommend to a patient, even if they don't have sleep issues, to take a melatonin supplement because it deals with the regulatory functions of our brain. Um, and that those two areas is where we think that uh, issues with sleep can affect one's migraine. And we also know the various kinds of sleep disorders like sleep apnea, insomnia, delayed circadian rhythm. Delayed circadian rhythm is another kind of difficulty falling asleep. We know people who work on, let's say, night shifts or, you know, when they have to work certain schedules like that, all those conditions have an increased, you know, risk, a higher likelihood of them also suffering from migraine. What about light? Does it play a role since it has such an important effect in regulating our circadian rhythms, particularly sunlight? Does it play a role in sleep and sleep and migraines? So there's that's a, a couple, I guess, fronts of that question to answer. First, go with sleep. Like, yes, um, what our body naturally does is when it starts to get dark out, you know, think of a time before there was you know, electricity, when the light dims, that's when our, uh, our penal gland, the penal gland sits in sort of the center back of the brain, which is what's related with uh, the release of melatonin. Um, you know, when it gets dark out, that starts acting more uh, because it knows that we're going to go to sleep. But we live in the day and age of electricity and we're looking at computer monitors and we have lights in our house. And that's why you, you might know some people who wear sort of blue light glasses, um, or if your phone has night mode, what is that? Your phone starts to get more of an orange hue. We know that it's the blue light, where we think from the you know blue of the sky, that sort of is what inhibits the release of melatonin. So that's why some people who are, let's say, using their computers at night will put their computer in night mode or use those like blue light glasses. When it comes to light and migraine, actually, that's a different feel, not related to sleep. We do know from certain studies that were performed that certain wavelengths of um, certain wavelengths of light, particularly um, blue light actually, can make headaches worse, where we know green light actually might make it better. To the point that there are actually products out there that like there are certain like lamps that will emit specific wavelengths of green, and there are glasses that will actually have a sort of filter on it, if you will, that make things in that green wavelength, and vice versa, there are glasses uh, for migraine sufferers that block certain blue wavelengths to reduce the pain. So that's how light can have an effect on migraine particularly. Tell us a little bit more about the effect of blue light and blue light devices on our sleep, our getting to sleep. Because I understand there was a lot of commotion a while back from studies that they did that said you should not be using your devices. I think it was four hours or six hours before you went to bed. Yes, I don't know the time frame, but this sort of goes back to sleep hygiene. Like you shouldn't be doing stimulating things, let's say two hours before going to sleep. You know, again, going back to a time before electricity, cell phones and computers, you know, once it got dark out, we weren't looking at things that were emitting light like this. Like even before really computers and smartphones, like we had lights in the house, but not these really bright things that were up in our face. And again, going back to how the penile gland works and how melatonin is released, it's the lack of these sort of 
uh, uh, wavelengths of light that allows melatonin to be released. And now we have all these devices that are interfering it. You know, it's sort of the dilemmas and challenges living in, you know, the 21st century. And, you know, this is, you know, how we've only had smartphones for what, 20 years? You know, not even. Uh, not even. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think when I got my first smartphone, or when, or when my friends or parents got their first smartphone. Like you know, it, it's a relatively you know recent thing when you look at the you know the history of humans. You know, even with electricity, it's been what a hundred and maybe ten years or so that we've had electricity, um, because the the light from lights versus a candle versus a fire is much different. So again, these things inhibit that. So then it goes to what can we do? You know. Um, using night mode is a great function. Again, we know reducing those blue uh, light frequencies because let's be real, you know, it's easy for me to sit here and say, don't use, you know, computers or cell phones after 9 p.m. We live in a, you know, working world. Um, obviously, if you could do that, that would be the best for this kind of things. But, you know, unfortunately, I'm, I'm more pragmatic, realistic and understanding that, hey, you know, it goes to also, I can't tell you how many times uh, when a patient tells me that, oh, yeah, I've, I've, I'm sleeping very fragmented sleep. Oh, well, that's where you're getting headaches. What's the reason? Oh, I have a, I have a newborn child. I can't tell them, all right, we'll get rid of the child. Like, no, like this is the, ch- the, the problems we face, but it's, it's trying to mitigate those things. So going back to really dealing with light, again, using night mode on your device, on your TV, on your computer, on your phone, being sure that maybe an hour before you go to bed, don't use your phone. Don't be laying in bed, you know, texting on your phone that, you know what? It's to 11 o'clock, put the phone away. Like, that's it for the phone. You know, that at 10 p.m., you get off the computer, you know. Um, and doing sort of habitual changes like that could have a big impact on your sleep and, you know, allowing it. If you're going to be using, maybe, you know, you have to do something that, again, like I said, night mode using blue light glasses. There's a lot of different ways we can sort of um, adjust uh, and sort of mitigate the these effects that it has on our sleep cycles. And that, you know, taking a break from using these devices, you know, it really, I can't tell you how much that, you know, most, there's so many little micro adjustments we can do with sleep hygiene that can have such a big effect on, you know, how we fall asleep. And it, this isn't also just not just addressing falling asleep, improving sleep hygiene helps with staying asleep and whatnot. It deals with sleep as a whole. What color lights are LEDs? Is that blue light? LED can be any frequency. It's just a kind of light. You know, I wouldn't say there's any, like, obviously LEDs are brighter generally, but again, it's not the, I would say the kind of light to be worried about. It's the, it's sort of the frequency. And that's why, again, I'm pretty sure almost on most devices nowadays, from phones to TVs to computer screens, um, we, there are, there are night mode functions. Like I know from my cell phone at around 8 PM, it automatically kicks in to night mode. You know, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure most smartphones these days have that function. I'm thinking also of, say, street lights that increasingly I used to see the warm sort of uh, kind of orange pink lights. And increasingly they've been replacing those with the very bright white lights that make you squint. And even the cars are now there's controversy because People are saying those lights are so bright that they're blinding other drivers and pedestrians. Has anybody looked at the effects of those lights on people and their I, patterns? 
I would predict yes. I'll be honest. I don't know of those studies. I would assume someone has looked at the different kinds of, you know, lights, LEDs, fluorescence, in, incandescent, etc. I'll admit I don't know that answer. Um, you know that more LEDs are being used because it's more energy efficient. You know, we talk about in today's day and age to be more energy um, uh, efficient, to use less energy. You know, the uh, the light bulbs of old, the incandescent light bulbs that we know, uh, the orange hue are not as efficient as a fluorescent bulb or an LED bulb that require less electricity. Is that having effect on headaches or sleep? I, you know, I'll admit I, I don't know that answer. Um, but uh, I I understand where you're coming from. I agree. Like, you know, streetlights are definitely brighter than I remember growing up. Um, but I don't know if they're having that kind of effect. You were talking about the different lifestyles in which people are people's sleep patterns are interrupted, like someone with a newborn baby, and what happened in the past before we had smartphones and computers. And I would say, well, what about further back in the past when? People couldn't sleep through the night because there could be a predator that could attack their camp. You know, having a campfire wouldn't be enough to keep a hungry predator out. So people didn't sleep seven hours at a time, but they slept in different periods. Correct. Right. So I actually do know a little bit about this, but again, I want to say something wrong. From what I remember reading uh, about how ancient uh primitive humans were before you know before we went back when we were hunter gatherers and we weren't you know agricultural and you know having towns and civilization was humans actually had we're the only we're what most animals do not sleep like humans where we sleep throughout the night where we have a period of sleeping for x amount of time straightly even think of your pets they sleep at hours at a time and that's really because of predators like you know imagine if you slept eight hours you know like you know something's gonna eventually come up upon you so yeah it was more humans used to be fragmented sleep even in like ancient times you know there was a a time where you would go to bed let's say when the sun goes down but then maybe for an hour or so at night you would actually be up and you would do whatever task and then you would go back to sleep so it used to be we had a bimodal sleeping period that's why actually you know there um it's common as we get older, just like a lot of people post 65 years old sort of have that. It just naturally comes back. So we didn't always sleep eight hours at a time. Again, I'm not an anthropologist. I can't give, I don't know much more information past that. <laughs> uh, but that, you know, you, you know, uh, primitive humans did have that sort of sleep uh, pattern where they weren't doing all eight at once. Is the, the number of hour requirement related to your mental engagement. In other words, does your brain have more cleaning to do if you have had a, phys a, a mentally taxing day than if you've just had your feet up and been looking at the clouds for 18 hours? You know, to answer that, I would say that to be vague, unfortunately, everyone really has different sleep habits and different sleep requirements. You know, that when I bring up sleep, but you know, everyone should be having more than six hours of sleep without a doubt. Cause I remember having some patients or friends be like, yeah, I get four hours and I feel fine. Like you can feel fine, but that's just, we know that's not good. But you might've met people that say they need nine or 10 hours 
or if they feel very groggy. Why do they need nine or 10 hours? You know, why? Like for me, I need seven hours and I feel fine. If I get less than an hour, I feel, you know, blech. And everyone's different. You know, in the end, we all, you know, everyone, you know, all humans, you know, my mom would say, oh, you're special growing up. Every human is unique. You know, same thing when I deal with patients' headaches, I say every headache is unique. And some people, in order to feel, you know, more refreshed, to feel better, they need maybe nine hours of sleep. Some people say I could do seven or six and I feel fine. But those who say, oh, I feel fine with four, I say, no, you still need to get at least six or seven. Like you shouldn't be doing that just from a physiological standpoint. Is it, you know, to, you know, obviously we can easily correlate people who have more conditions, who are more sick, might need more sleep. But I wouldn't say there's an exact correlation to that. You know, I would say what's important is make sure you're getting definitely at least six, but you should be aiming for seven to eight. And if you're someone who needs nine, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I want to be like, oh, no, if I need nine hours of sleep, I have something has to be wrong with me. No, if you need, you know, 12 hours of sleep, I know people who say I always need 12. Like, oh, well, that's, you know, interesting. I would definitely, you know, check if something, you know, why are you so fatigued? Why are you so tired? But, you know, there are, you know, that range between six to eight to nine, you know, I wouldn't worry too much. And everyone has their own sort of requirements like that. But are they related to the demands that you're making of your body and your brain? Meaning if you are doing a triathlon, your body is going to need a different amount of nutrition and hydration and perhaps sleep than if you're just having a regular week. And if you are taking your medical finals you're going to have different requirements than if you're just having a regular day in your medical career, right? Well, that goes, there's a lot of different components that go into that. Like I said, everyone's sort of different. Everyone has different requirements. You know, there's other factors that go into that. What I will say is sleep debt is a real thing. Meaning that, you know, when you, let's say for three or four days straight, only get four hours, like, it's not like, oh, wow, I gained so much time. Like, at some point, like later in that, if you sleep without an alarm, you're going to sleep 10 hours or so. Sleep that is a real thing. I remember learning that back when I was in medical school. Um, so uh, that it's it's not of like, oh, wow, can I get, you know, by with if I just do more work, I have finals coming up. Um, you're going to feel groggy for a longer period of time unless you have a day where you sleep in like that. Um, but when it comes to what you initially ask. It, those aren't the only factors. There are people, you probably know people who could recover. Let's say you had a hard day of work, a hard workout. There are people who spring back really quickly. Whereas some people, they have a hard workout, lifting a lot of stuff. They're going to need two to three days to sort of spring back. It's sort of like that. Everyone has sort of different requirements. Everyone has different needs. That it's not that, let's say you had a day where you ran a triathlon or you did all this work. Oh, I need to get more hours. You need enough hours that you feel refreshed. You know, maybe you need only 30 more minutes. Like, there's not a specific answer to that, I would say. And it's complicated because sometimes people wake up in the middle of the night and they haven't had enough sleep. There's no magic way to know I had my tank is full, let's call it, for sleep. I mean, when it comes to that, to knowing, you know, one, this is really where the sleep diary comes in, you know, and also recall bias. What's that like? You know, when you go to your doctor with, you know, symptom like that, this goes into headaches, too. It's like 
to think about, all right, let me think for the past few months, how much sleep am I getting? How many times am I waking up? Like, it's very hard to remember that we're human. If you remembered every day how much sleep you got, I would be like, all right, I'm impressed. Um, uh, and that's why if this is, you know, something you're thinking, like, am I getting good quality sleep? What's going on? Keep a sleep diary. You know, same thing when I have my headache patients, they always keep a headache diary because to think about, you know, when I ask you how many headaches have you had in the past three months, it's very human to only remember your worst. What about the little ones? What about the minor headaches? What about the days maybe you only woke up once? You're going to be focused on days you woke up three times. And that's why it's so important to keep a headache diary, to have that information. If you don't get enough sleep, is that a trigger for a migraine or is that one of the triggers for a migraine? What is the relationship? Is it causal? So first I would say the answer is yes. Having lack of sleep is a trick could be, could be a trigger for migraine, but what's also more interesting is not just a lack oversleeping could trigger migraine. I know if I sleep 12 hours, I actually would get a migraine attack that that is a thing, but more specifically it's change in sleep habits. It's a major trigger as well. I'll give an anecdotal experience. This is myself. When I was in residency, when I was working on the wards, I'm not sleeping that much. We're working 80, 90 hour weeks. And I would probably get five hours of sleep. And what I found perplexing was those weeks I had less migraine attacks. Well, what? Well, that doesn't make sense. I'm not sleeping as much. But then when I would change, I'll be off the wards. I would go to my clinic block and I would sleep seven hours. I'll get a migraine that for, during that transition. What the heck? I just got seven hours of sleep. Why am I getting a migraine? And I actually, you know, correlated it back to, and later when I did my headache medicine fellowship and I've learned, you know, now I actually learned it, you know, and not just me experimenting. It's because when I was on the wards, I would sleep only five hours, but every night I got the same hours of sleep. Then when I went to the clinic and I transitioned, now I got seven, now the sleep habit changed. So when you have varying sleep, changes in sleep, that could be a trigger itself. It's not just getting the right amount of sleep, not too much, not too little, but having a steady, you know, common amount of sleep. If you're doing something where you're sleeping four hours and seven hours and five hours, those changes, that could be a migraine trigger too. Now, I understand that some people who suffer from migraines say that when they have a migraine, their sleep is impacted. They don't sleep well. So even if they lay down as if to go to sleep, you know, the whole dark room, the whole sleep hygiene, or even if they do that at a time when they wouldn't normally do that, they can't sleep well. They can feel that they're not having their normal cycle that we were talking about earlier, those four stages. Why is that? There's a couple of things going on in that. One, they're in pain. That's the simplest thing to say. So obviously it's harder to fall asleep when you're in pain when you're not in pain. And two, also we do know, so for migraine, there is what we call pre and post-drome symptoms. These are symptoms that you have before and after the headache. And one of the feelings of after you suffer a migraine attack is feeling fatigued. Even though you've got, you know, it may not be that your sleep cycles interact like that, that is a known symptom after. So it's not necessarily a symptom of the sleep, it's a symptom of the migraine itself, that migraines could leave us feeling fatigued like that, you know, and likely answer it's a combination of both of having, you know, you're in this, you know, migraines are very painful, then it's not just a headache, it's a very painful thing. And, you know, so you're having an impact on your quality of sleep from that, but also the post 
symptoms of a migraine attack and feeling that fatigue, feeling that grogginess. How important is caffeine in the sleep and migraine cycle relationship? Caffeine's an interesting thing when it comes to migraine. Very interesting. It's a double-edged sword. And what do I mean by that? It could help migraine. It could worsen migraine. So first, let me you know back this up and say Excedrin, common migraine headache treatment. What is an Excedrin? Excedrin is aspirin, acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, and caffeine. There's caffeine in Excedrin. Why is there caffeine in a drug marketed to treat migraine? And the reason why is the thought, well, the thought what ca- caffeine does is it causes vasoconstriction. Vasoconstriction is the tightening, the, 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 the blood vessels in our brain can, gets, gets, gets smaller. Why does that help with a headache, with migraine? One of the things we know happening in a migraine is, again, it's a neuroinflammation. One area where we store inflammatory markers is the blood vessel. Why? Why are the, well, when you get a cut, how does your body know to fix, to, to, to plug up the hole? Well, in our blood vessels, there are inflammatory markers that when we get a cut, they're released, they, they, they come out, and the body knows to plug it up. During a migraine, we know the, the blood vessel walls are having vasospasms. They are shaking, if you will, and that releases the inflammatory markers. By having caffeine, the blood vessels constrict, therefore they're not moving, and therefore they're not releasing those inflammatory markers. That's how we think caffeine helps migraine attacks. Like for me, I know that's actually a helpful thing. I know if I have a cup of coffee, it will reduce my headache. However, there are people, and we know this from studies, that will make their headache worse. Why is that? I just explained how it can make it better. The thought is that when caffeine acts in other things, it increases our heart rate, you know, it can increase our blood pressure, it can make us more anxious. So this maybe for those individuals, because like I said, every headache is unique. Maybe for those individuals, the, the effect that caffeine has on other areas outweighs the benefit that it's having on the blood vessels that I was just mentioning. So that's why caffeine is very interesting because it can be good for some and bad for others. I always ask about caffeine intake when I have a new patient visit. Because it's, you know, for some people, they might, we might recognize through the headache that, oh, hey, wait a minute. You know what? Caffeine is not good for you. It's making your headache work worse. For others, like, you know what? You know, you can stay on two cups of coffee a day. I don't think it's having an impact on your headache. So it's sort of, it, it's a double-edged sword. It, 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 it's on both sides of the fence. Could it be that it helps initially, but then it aggravates it? You know, that's certainly possible. If you consume caffeine later in the day, while it might help the headache, it might make your sleep worse because you had caffeine later in the day. But I can argue on the other side of that coin, hey, it might make you, you having caffeine later in the day, but it helps your headache because if it didn't help your headache, you wouldn't be able to fall asleep. It's not an, it's not an easy answer. It's very gray. What about substances like hemp and marijuana slash THC? magic mushrooms they're touting these new really old substances as the cure for everything do they have a role to play in sleep and migraines i can't answer particularly the role of psilocybin you know uh mushrooms and marijuana thc on sleep i don't i can't say that on a physiological level i don't know that answer with migraine, I could speak about marijuana, that, you know, it is 
Uh, I have prescribed medical marijuana um, for some patients that there is a lot of evidence for marijuana as a migraine abortive, as a drug to stop a migraine attack. And the physiological the reasoning is that um, the receptors that migraine that marijuana acts on in our in our brain, you can think of that as an axon. It does, you know, in, interact with our pain receptors. Um, so for some, it could be a very worthwhile treatment. And you know, the thing is that uh, you know, because patients have come to ask me that, you know, you need to go to. I recommend going to a medical marijuana specialist, not just going to a dispensary. So I'm in the state of New York where recreational marijuana is legal. You know, you do want certain ratios of THC, you know, so um, for those individuals, I refer them to a medical marijuana specialist because, you know, you want to get the right ratio, the right amount. But there is evidence for that. It's not just I would say, you know, hoopla or something like there. We do have physiological evidence of how marijuana acts on our pain receptors in the brain. You're not just per se getting high and that sensation gets rid of it. The actual cat, the cannabinoid receptors in the brain are interacting with our natural opioid receptors and things like that in our pain receptors. Um, as far as sleep, like I said, unfortunately, I'm not a sleep specialist. I can't per se answer that. I don't know how physiologically interacts with that. Um, psilocybin, you know, I don't know much about migraine, but I do know psilocybin with cluster headaches that there are now groups that are starting to research with it because I've heard from patients in case reports that psilocybin has been very useful for treating refractory cluster headache. Cluster headache is one of the most painful conditions known to man. It's a horrible, horrible kind of headache that only lasts maybe 15 minutes, three hours, but it's super severe, sudden pain. Um, and that there are reports that um, psilocybin could be very effective for those that other treatments don't work. Like I know a group actually in Australia and other countries that are now doing um, work in doing trials for that. You know, that's I'm very excited for because, you know, this could be a condition that could be extremely debilitating. And, you know, people are like, oh, how can you do testing on that? How do we know? We have to investigate. We don't know unless you look, you know, like I know in California, they're doing, they're doing more and more clinical trials on migraine and medical marijuana, uh, medical marijuana. I think that's great because that's how we know. You know, we only you, you only know an answer to a problem if you if you if, if you look at it. And like I said, the data so far of medical marijuana and migraine has been, you know, looking very good and I'm excited for what news is to come. Uh, precautions that I have heard about psilocybin is that it has the potential to alter your brain permanently. Is this something you have heard about? Would that be a concern for you? I don't know enough to comment on that. I don't know what the effects or the permanent effects, you know, of psilocybin, LSD, those things, you know, have on our brain chemistry. So I'm not sure. And I, for the record, you know, I, I, I you know, psilocybin and the patients, patients have asked, you know, I brought up that, you know, there are certain psychiatrists, the specialists in the country that deal with that. You know, it's not something I myself recommend. What signs should our listeners look for in terms of their sleep or their migraines to help them address these issues? Is, if their sleep is disrupted, should they be worried about a migraine or vice versa? If they're having a migraine, is this affecting their sleep? How can they counter this process? So I would say this sort of in two answers, one for overall general population, not just migraine sufferers, 
if you find yourself waking up throughout the night, you're having trouble falling asleep, you know, trouble staying asleep. Not if you're not feeling refreshed up the day, if you're like, I get eight hours sleep, but I need to drink four cups of coffee and I'm really tired. That's to be when you should be asking yourself, well, what's up with my sleep? And the first two things is keeping a sleep diary and talking to your primary care doctor. You know, for those individuals who specifically suffer with migraine, you know, anyone who suffers with migraine always, you know, just think about your sleep, you know, that it's always, you know, important to evaluate all migraine triggers. So if you're someone who suffers from frequent headaches or migraine, that's a, that's a reason to question your sleep and to sit back and think, well, how has my sleep been? Do I have trouble falling asleep? How much am I sleeping? Am I waking up throughout the night? Because as I was saying before, to have good headache health, you need good sleep health. And that's why every visit of mine, I always ask my patients about their sleep because uh, it's commonly underrepresented, not so much asked area. And that it's really simple to overlook it. And it could be very simple to fix it. And again, there's a lot to answer, but start small again. Ask yourself those questions and keeping a sleep diary is the first step. And then from there, just a sleep diary alone gives so much information to then, you know, take the plunge, sort of figure out, all right, let's see what's going on. What do you think about holistic method in terms of your sleep hygiene? Things like having a dark room, having a quiet room or white noise acupuncture, oh. massage, uh, chamomile. Well, having a dark and quiet room, I wouldn't call that holistic. I'll call it having a good sleep environment. You don't <laughs> want to go to sleep in a loud area. Why noise? Some people need it. Some people help some. I'm, you know, if it, whatever helps you get good quality sleep, I'm fine with. I don't like people say they use the TV to fall asleep. That's generally stimulating. I don't recommend that. But if you need a white noise machine, a fan, you know, there are apps that do stuff now. That's fine. That's what helps you get good sleep. When it comes to things like acupuncture, massage, for, for, for migraine, it's great. For sleep, I don't know the evidence for that. You know, And again, if someone says I need acupuncture to get good sleep, that begs me to ask, is there another issue happening that's preventing you get good sleep, such as are you having neck pain or back pain? Obviously, those could prevent you from getting good sleep, and that's why those would be good treatments for that. But primarily for headache, I don't know that answer. But, you know, as long as whatever you need to do to get good quality sleep, as long, you know, to get it done. And when you say good quality sleep, my understanding is that most of the sleep prescription medications uh, long term are not a good idea. Is that right? I don't recommend and I don't myself prescribe. Like if someone's getting that a sleep medicine and it's done by a sleep specialist because that I call it a bit of a last resort. It, it, you know, they help, they work, but again, that they could be habit forming that, you know, you might have an underlying, it's better to address an underlying issue than just slapping on a medication. They have their purpose. I have some patients who need to take Lunesta, Lunestra, actually, I think as you say it, Ambien, et cetera, you know, and for them, there's the sleep doctor as, you know, they've done their work. It's like, Hey, listen, you know, we're dealing with the kind of insomnia that unfortunately improving your hygiene hasn't addressed. There are people who need that, but it shouldn't be the first answer. It's, you know, you, 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 again, you follow with your sleep specialist, you have things evaluated and for some that might be the answer, but you know, it, it's not something to do off the bat. Where can our listeners get more information on these issues, sleep and sleep and migraines? You know, for all headache 
and migraine-related things, you know, so I'm a headache specialist. That is my gist. That is what I do. I only see headache patients, and it's the field I love very much, you know, that I'm very happy to be in. Um, that, you know, I have a website, headache123.com, has about papers I write, my activities. I, I do a blog. Uh, I'm, you know, I actually just did one on vitamin D deficiency. Um, and, you know, for all headache stuff, a great place to follow. Sleep, I talk specifically about sleep and migraine, but for sleep overall, you know, like I said, first, you know, everyone Google stuff. I want to see Google, but if you're someone, you're listening and you're like, you know what, I'm having issues with sleep, what I would say is start a sleep diary and talk to your primary care doctor. It's the first place to go. You know, they're the, they're the center point of your of your health. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it's the first step. If you you know think you're suffering from a sleep issue, to you know start a sleep diary and speak with your primary care doctor. They're the center point of your health. You know it's the first place to start for any sort of condition. Fred, thank you for joining us from New York City. Thank you very much for having me back. And to our audience, you have been listening to Fred Cohen, M.D., who is a headache specialist at Mount Sinai Medical System in New York City who discussed sleep and migraines. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.